Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The illegal intrusion of airspace of other countries by U.S. balloons is also commonplace. Just since last year, the U.S.'s high-altitude balloons illegally entered Chinese airspace more than 10 times without the approval of the relevant Chinese authorities. We are not flying surveillance balloons over China. I'm not aware of any other craft that we're flying over uh, into, into Chinese airspace. As China accuses the U.S. of flying its own spy balloons over China, we'll look at the growing tension between Washington and Beijing after the Biden administration shot down a Chinese surveillance balloon and three additional unidentified flying objects in the U.S. and Canada. We'll also look at how the U.S. is expanding its military footprint in the Pacific. Then to the bomb train. We go to Ohio to look at a devastating train derailment that exposed residents to a slew of toxic chemicals forcing many from their homes. I think it's really important to understand that people are suffering in the immediate right now um, from things going on that aren't being reported and that people are going to suffer several years from now from All what that they've been exposed to. Coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The death toll from last week's massive earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has topped 37,000. As the United Nations warns, nearly 900,000 quake survivors are in urgent need of hot food. More than 5 million people in Syria may have been left homeless by the disaster. On Monday, Syria's government said President Bashir al-Assad had granted permission to the U.N. to deliver aid through two more border crossings from Turkey into rebel-held parts of northwest Syria. This comes as rescue crews held out hope of finding a few more survivors trapped beneath collapsed buildings. On Monday, a 13-year-old boy in Hatay, Turkey, was pulled from the rubble after 182 hours. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said more than 8,000 people had been saved in similar operations. Erdogan's praise for rescue workers came as a video went viral showing the Turkish leader boasting in 2009 about granting amnesty to construction companies for violating building standards at millions of sites across Turkey. The Centers for Disease Control is warning teen girls across the U.S. are engulfed in a growing wave of violence and trauma, as new data shows there's been an increase in rapes and sexual assaults, as well as record levels of depression and hopelessness. The data is from a 2021 CDC survey conducted on 17,000 high school teenagers, where nearly a third of teen girls said they'd seriously considered suicide, up nearly 60 percent from a decade ago. At least 13 percent of them said they'd attempted suicide in the past year, while almost 15 percent of the girls surveyed said they'd been sexually assaulted. 
In East Lansing, Michigan, a gunman opened fire Monday evening on the Michigan State University campus, killing three people, critically injuring five others. Students, faculty, staff were ordered to shelter in place during an hours-long manhunt that ended when the shooter was discovered dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Police said the 43-year-old gunman had no known affiliation to the university. This is MSU freshman Jack Dell. My phone started blowing up with texts and calls, stay safe, don't move, so I was a little confused and then started finding out all the news, so I barricaded my door, uh, the front door, and then got in my room, barricaded that with my dresser, and then locked myself in my closet. In a statement, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer said, quote, this is a uniquely American problem. Too many of us scan rooms for exits when we enter them. We plan who that last text or call would go to. We should not, we cannot accept living like this, the governor said. Meanwhile, in Parkland, Florida, community members are gathering today for a remembrance ceremony marking the fifth anniversary of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School tragedy. It was Valentine's Day 2018 when a gunman killed 17 people and injured 17 others. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been 67 mass shootings in the United States since the start of the year. That's on average more than one massacre a day. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has announced she's running for the Republican Party's presidential nomination in 2024. She also served as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under President Trump until she quit the post in December 2018. She announced her candidacy in a three-minute campaign video posted to social media today. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. Nikki Haley is a staunch opponent of gun control, who won an A-plus rating from the National Rifle Association's Political Victory Fund in 2014. The following year, a white supremacist gunman armed with an assault rifle massacred nine African-American worshippers at the historic Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. In the wake of the shooting, Haley called for the Confederate battle flag to be removed from the state capitol grounds. But that was only after enormous public pressure, including the arrest of activist Breed Newsom, who scaled a 30-foot flagpole to tear down the flag in an act of nonviolent civil disobedience on the Capitol grounds. She was arrested, and the flag was put back up on that day. In Ohio, fears of a wider health and environmental disaster are growing after a freight train operated by Norfolk Southern crashed and released toxic chemicals last week in the community of East Palestine, near Ohio's border with Pennsylvania. Data released by the Environmental Protection Agency Sunday show the train contained more toxic and carcinogenic chemicals than initially reported. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources estimates the spill killed more than 3,500 fish in surrounding waterways. Chickens have been found dead in their coops. Residents have reported sore throats, burning eyes, respiratory problems. We'll have more on the Ohio rail disaster later in the broadcast. The World Health Organization is warning a highly pathogenic variant of avian influenza is increasingly spreading among mammals, raising the prospect it could trigger a pandemic in humans. The H5N1 flu outbreak has killed countless wild birds and millions of farm poultry, driving up the cost of eggs worldwide. In October, the virus was found circulating among mink on a fur farm in Spain. 
Recently, it's been detected in wild mammals, including foxes, coyotes, skunk bears, mountain lions, and even seals and dolphins. Last week, World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus warned health agencies to prepare for the possibility of community spread in humans. Since H5N1 first emerged in 1996, we have only seen rare and non-sustained transmission of H5N1 to and between humans. But we cannot assume that will remain the case, and we must prepare for any change in the status quo. As always, people are advised not to touch or collect dead or sick wild animals, but to report them to the local authorities. In Guatemala, the indigenous human rights defender and presidential hopeful Telma Cabrera has vowed to fight the decision by Guatemala's Supreme Electoral Tribunal to block her and her running mate, former human rights ombudsman Jadán Rodas, from the ballot in this year's presidential elections. Cabrera and Rodas, who are members of the leftist political party, the Movement for the Liberation of the Peoples, were in Washington, D.C. over the weekend to meet with the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights following their ban from the elections. They also Travel to New York, where Democracy Now! spoke with them Sunday. I asked them why they believe they're being targeted. The response as indigenous people is that this ratifies what we've always denounced, that Guatemala is a corrupt state that's been co-opted by criminals. This is now reflected in violating our right to participate in this presidential election. The problem the state has is the people who support us, because there's this push for real structural change in Guatemala. That's indigenous human rights defender Telma Cabrera. This is Jordan Rodas, who was forced into exile last year before the end of his term as Guatemala's human rights ombudsman. He faced attacks from the right-wing government over his involvement in anti-corruption efforts. Well, it's because the corrupt pact is terrified of us. They're a pact that spans the Guatemalan political and economic sectors and that has looted our country for decades or centuries. It benefits them to maintain the status quo of inequality, racism and corruption. In Chile, forensic experts have found famed poet and Nobel Prize winner Pablo Neruda died of poisoning, not cancer. In September 1973, according to his nephew, Neruda's sudden death came just 12 days after General Augusto Pinochet took power in a U.S.-backed military coup that overthrew the democratically elected president, Salvador Allende, who died in the palace that day. Pablo Neruda was a close friend of Allende. Neruda's body was exhumed in 2013 after his former driver for decades claimed he was poisoned by a stomach injection administered by doctors under the dictatorship. And former Black Panther leader and political prisoner Marshal Eddie Conway died Monday in Long Beach, California. His wife, Dominique Conway, announced his passing on Twitter, saying, quote, It's hard to find the words necessary to convey my sense of loss and the enormous loss the world has experienced with the death of my husband. Eddie Conway was 76 years old. He was a leading member of the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panthers. He was convicted in 1971 of killing Baltimore police officer Donald Sager the previous year. But Eddie Conway maintained his innocence, saying he was set 
set up. For years, Conway's supporters campaigned for him to be pardoned. He was released from prison in 2014 after serving 44 years. To see our interviews with Eddie Conway, visit our website, democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we're beginning today's show looking at the at U.S.-China relations, 10 days after the U.S. shot down a suspected high-altitude Chinese surveillance balloon off the coast of South Carolina, after it had flown across Alaska, across Canada, and then across the United States. According to the U.S. military's Northern Command, divers' crews have been able to recover significant debris from the site, including sensor and electronic pieces from the the structure. Meanwhile, China's accused the U.S. of flying surveillance balloons into Chinese airspace at least 10 times over the past year, a claim the Biden administration's rejected. This is Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin. The illegal intrusion of airspace of other countries by U.S. balloons is also commonplace. Just since last year, the U.S.'s high-altitude balloons illegally entered Chinese airspace more than 10 times without the approval of the relevant Chinese authorities. The first thing the U.S. side should do is start with a clean slate, undergo some self-reflection, instead of smearing and accusing China. In recent days, the U.S. has also shot down three additional objects flying at a lower altitude, one in northern Alaska, one over Lake Huron, and one over central Yukon in Canada. The Biden administration said little about the three objects, leading to rampant speculation. On Sunday, a reporter asked the NORAD commander, that's the Air Force General Glenn Van Herk, if the military has ruled out aliens or extraterrestrials. Van Herk responded by saying, I haven't ruled out any anything at this point. That led to the White House briefing on Monday, um, where they said no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity. Democratic Congress member Jim Himes appeared on Meet the Press Sunday and called on the Biden administration to release more information. You know, the one thing, Chuck, that is troubling me here, uh, I sort of see a pattern. I, as I looked at social media this morning, you know, all of a sudden, massive speculation about alien invasions and, you know, additional Chinese action yeah. or Russian action. Uh, in the absence of information, people's anxiety leads them into uh, potentially destructive areas. So I do hope that very soon the administration right. has a lot more information for all of us on what's going on. U.S. senators are scheduled to receive a classified briefing today. We're joined now by Jake Warner, a historian of modern China, research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His new piece for The Nation with Bill Hartung is headlined, War with China is Preventable, Not Inevitable. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Jake. I mean, what we are seeing in this last week, um, the you know, you have these jet fighter planes that are taking down, exploding these surveillance objects in the sky. Uh, even people like Congressmember Hines are saying, what are we doing? They not only don't pose military threat, they don't pose a civilian threat. Like, uh, when was the last time a balloon took down a civilian plane? But the reason this is all happening is because of this increased anti-China fervor in the United States. Can you just talk about everything in context? 
Yeah, what what this really shows is that um, as the as the sense of threat around China increases, then uh, American leaders are looking for threats everywhere in places that they weren't looking for before, and they're finding things that they hadn't paid any attention to, and identifying those as potential threats and uh, taking preemptive excuse me preemptive action on them. So now we're we're shooting down objects that previously would have been ignored. Um, that previously the the surveillance uh, capabilities of the United States would have filtered out uh, with the with the the intrusion of the of the Chinese uh, spy balloon into U.S. airspace. Now uh, people are looking for threats everywhere, and that's and that's not just around surveillance. It's not just around balloons or unidentified flying objects. It's around everything. People are seeing threats from China everywhere they go and uh, responding in ways that uh, will often be very counterproductive. And Jake Werner, why do you think uh, this is happening? I mean, this whole thing about the balloons, when so many governments have satellite systems uh, that are doing reconnaissance on an almost daily basis of of countries around the world, why this sudden fixation on uh, uh, balloons has arisen? I think I think it's actually unwanted on the part of the Biden administration. They were looking to improve relationship with China, um, as the Chinese government was looking to improve the relationship with the United States. Um, uh, unfortunately, the the uh, the wandering of this balloon into into the public consciousness gave space to people who are looking uh, who are looking very hard for places to attack both the administration and China on in U.S. politics. That gave them an opening, and there was uh, just a massive kind of freakout around the balloon. Um, and but you're right, uh, surveillance is something that major countries do to each other on an everyday basis. It's one of the most banal facts of international relations. Um, the U.S. is spying on China. China is spying on the United States. The U.S. is spying on allies. Even um, there was there was a scandal less than ten years ago about the U.S. spying on the Chancellor of Germany, uh, Merkel. So this is something that is just a part of international relations. It can be healthy um, because if 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 major countries know what they're doing, there's there's less room for miscalculation uh, when it comes to tension and, and conflict. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that countries shouldn't take prudent uh, prudent steps to guard against it. Um, but it, it really is all part of the game, and it, it shouldn't be uh, it shouldn't be the occasion for uh, for massive overreaction. Uh, or for demonizing other countries around it. And that, that goes for China as well. Um, of course, China is sort of hitting back at the United States. But but this is something that the United States, as as everybody knows, the United States has been spying on China for, for many years and is doing so probably more effectively with satellite surveillance than, than with balloons. Um, so the I think the important thing here is to not lose sight of, of how crucial it is that the two most powerful countries in the world uh, avoid a trajectory towards Towards really serious conflict that they were on, and and that the uh, the meeting between Xi Jinping and uh, and Joe Biden last November seemed to give a respite from that. Um, it, it's important to return to that possibility of cooling tensions. But you say that uh, President Biden is committed to trying to to attempt down conflicts between the United States and China, but yet at the same time. He's remaining extremely ambiguous over the longstanding one China China policy of the United States. Could you talk about how the Biden administration has been dealing with the issue of 
of uh, Taiwan as a sore point uh, in U.S.-China relations uh, and what should be done by the administration? Yeah, on Taiwan and on a lot of issues, honestly, there's a bit of a contradiction within the administration, I think. On the one part, they genuinely want to avoid conflict with China. On the other hand, they increasingly are pursuing a policy path that is almost guaranteed to create conflict with China. Um, the, the most explosive potential uh, flashpoint is around Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is uh, the, the claim that uh, mainland China makes on time. Taiwan is a bedrock part of Chinese nationalism. Uh, the Chinese government uh, will not give it up and it will go to war uh, if it feels that Taiwan is being permanently separated from China. Uh, the United States definitely does not want that. But at the same time, as the as distrust has really come to characterize everything about the relationship, the U.S. is pursuing a, a one-sided deterrence policy against China, trying to convince China uh, not to make any aggressive moves towards Taiwan on the basis of simply strengthening the military deterrence on the U.S. side and the Taiwanese side and allied countries in the region. Um, but, but quite predictable, predictably, this is this is giving the Chinese leadership the sense that they are increasingly encircled and besieged by the most powerful country in the world and the rest of the most powerful countries in the world, that, that, the, that all the major powers are kind of ganging up on China. And increasingly, China is pursuing its own deterrence measures aimed to convince uh, the United States and its allies not to infringe Chinese interests. And this is leading to a kind of escalatory spiral where both sides feel like they are looking out for their own security they're both trying to uh, prevent the other side from taking aggressive actions. And the result is to exacerbate nationalism on both sides, exacerbate distrust on both sides, and lead to uh, a militarization of the relationship that, uh, that eventually, if, if the trajectory is not changed, eventually will likely lead to major conflict. I mean, it is frightening when you see this kind of monolithic um, a force pushing toward militarization against China. You've got the Republicans and Democrats essentially agreeing. You know, the Republicans are saying, shoot down that balloon. And then Biden administration, Democrats are in agreement. And the media, and I'm not just talking Fox, I'm talking um, CNN, MSNBC, couldn't be more um, aggressive when coming to dealing with China and these, for example, spy satellites, when you have China saying, hey, you know, we've been watching your spy satellites over us for the last year, at least 10 of them, and we haven't raised this as an issue. But I wanted to ask, what about the corporate view of this? I mean, going back to last year, bilateral trade between the U.S. and China reaches a record-breaking $690 billion. I mean, you can't have places like Apple and other corporations that use China for its cheap labor, wanting the U.S. to go to war with China? No, they don't. They they certainly don't want conflict. They also don't want to be cut out of the Chinese market, which is one of the fastest growing markets in the world. There's a lot of profits to be made in the China market. There are a lot of cost advantages to sourcing production from China. Um, a lot of uh, manufacturers in the United States rely on low-cost Chinese imports to remain competitive. Um, so the the business community as a whole is very uneasy about this, but they also uh, have uh, they have really gotten a clear signal from policymakers in D.C. that if they stand up and say something, that they are going to become the targets uh, for withering attack from from people who are charging them with being unpatriotic, with selling out the country, 
Um, and and so what they're doing instead is keeping this very quiet, sort of indicating in private uh, we we would prefer that the restriction we understand the need for restrictions, but the restrictions shouldn't be too tight. So they're trying to kind of make movement on the edges rather than trying to change the overall foundation of the relationship. The uh, the problem with that approach is, uh, of course, that as the relationship deteriorates, 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 if you're just trying to make adjustments on the margins, you're not doing anything to the overall trajectory. And the, the political logic of conflict in D.C. right now is so powerful. It's so easy to uh, to to make hay over the issue by accusing your opponent of being weak on China. And there is no political incentive for people in D.C. to stand up and say, we don't want international conflict. It's important for the two most powerful countries in the world to have a constructive relationship and work on these hugely important issues of shared concern between the two countries, between the two peoples. There, right now, the, the forces that have an interest in cooperation between the U.S. and China are not articulating that interest effectively in D.C. And so people don't feel like there's a political upside to, uh, to, to, to pushing back against in the incitement of international conflict that is really dominant right now. Well, Jake Werner, we want to thank you for being with us, historian of modern China research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We'll link to your piece in The Nation with Bill Hartung. War with China is preventable, not inevitable. In our next segment, we're staying with China. Um, we're going to speak with David Vine, author of Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the world. Stay with us. War, performed by Edwin Starr, the protest anthem was written by Motown legend Barrett Strong, who died in January at the age of 81. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we continue to look at U.S.-China relations, we turn to the growing U.S. military presence in the Pacific. The Biden administration recently reached an agreement with the Philippines to give the United States access to four more military bases in the former U.S. colony. This will allow the U.S. greater access to the South China Sea and Taiwan as tensions rise between Washington and Beijing. The deal was announced after Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. in Manila. 
We're joined now by David Vine, professor of anthropology at American University, co-founder of the Overseas Base Realignment and Closure Coalition. His books include Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad, Harm America and the World. Welcome to Democracy Now! I mean, this is right in line with what you write about, Base Nation. Talk about that image of Lloyd Austin, um, the— Secretary of Defense standing with the new president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos's son, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., announcing more U.S. military bases in the Philippines, Japan being increasingly militarized, what's happening in the South China Sea. This is precisely what we don't need. Let me first say happy Valentine's Day, happy V-Day, Amy and Juan. It's a pleasure to be with you. But that image of, uh, of Lloyd Austin uh, announcing the deployment of U.S. forces to four new bases, in addition to five U.S. bases where U.S. troops are deployed in the Philippines, making a total of nine, uh, potentially, in, in days and months to come. That's precisely the wrong image and precisely the wrong direction that the U.S. should be going in. The uh, United States, the Biden administration, and a, a larger foreign policy elite, I'm sad to say, has hijacked our foreign policy and is currently escalating military tensions with China at precisely the moment we need to be moving in the other direction. We need to be drawing down U.S. military bases and forces in the region while building up our, our d diplomatic presence. There, there actually is a, a good sign in, in recent days. I will give the Biden administration some credit for opening a new embassy in the Solomon Islands. This is in the context of a security deal between the Solomon Islands and China announced in the last year or so. The United States could have responded militarily. I'm glad that they didn't and instead opened a, a new embassy and are sending additional diplomats. And this is the approach we need to take. I think actually the balloon incident offers a rare opportunity for us to consider a really hard and stark question, and that is, do we want a war with China? I think the people of the United States absolutely do not want war. They are sick of war, sick and tired of war after 21 years of war launched by the George W. Bush administration with its war on terror, the catastrophes in Afghanistan and Iraq following prior catastrophes dating to the war in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. We need to move in another direction. And I think we're better than the current approach that the Biden administration and this foreign policy blob, a group of elites that have dominated U.S. foreign policy for far too long, they have led us down the wrong path. And we need to push back on our leaders to choose a different path, a path of peaceful, if challenging, coexistence with China, cooperation on the real threats that face us, and moving in and doing everything we can, excuse me, doing everything we can to reduce military tensions, uh, which uh, most frighteningly of all, raise the real risk of a direct military confrontation and war between the United States and China that could so easily spin completely out of control into a nuclear war that could literally threaten human existence on Earth. Well, David Vine, you say that most Americans are uh, tired of uh, of uh, wars that the U.S. has engaged in, but at the same time, uh, they're not really cognizant of the extent to which U.S. military power through these bases is wielded around the world. Could you, could you remind us how many U.S. bases are there in the world? How does that compare 
to uh, other countries in terms of having uh, bases, military bases on foreign soil? Yeah, adding U.S. troops to four new bases in the Philippines is simply unnecessary and wasteful on top of an, an already astronomically wasteful Pentagon budget. Uh, in, in addition to the potentially nine U.S. bases in the Philippines, the United States already has, by the Pentagon's own count, 313 U.S. military base sites in East Asia alone. And that's part of a larger global network of around 750 U.S. military bases outside the 50 states in Washington, D.C. And that's according to a list that the coalition that you mentioned that I'm a part of, the Overseas Base Realignment and Closure Coalition, a transpartisan group of folks uh, that we've been keeping. Uh, and indeed, the 750 U.S. bases in some 80 countries and colonies around the world is more bases than any nation, empire, or people in world history, compared to China. Again, and I think this helps underline the fact that China is not a conventional military threat to the United States, and that can't be emphasized enough in this moment of ballooning China fear-mongering, a kind of really racist uh, fear-mongering that's both fueled by anti-Asian racism and fueling anti-Asian racism. In this moment, we need to remind people that China is not the threat that the Soviet Union was at the height of the Cold War. China is not about to attack California or Hawaii or Guam or Alaska. Uh, China is a threat to neighbors, and they have every right to be afraid. But the response to that fear, the response to any military threat that China does pose regionally is not to escalate militarily, uh, not to build more bases. And again, the, the comparison with China's military presence globally is, is helpful. China has about eight foreign military bases, one in Djibouti and some on human-made islands in the South China Sea. Uh, this compared to the 750 U.S. military bases outside the 50 states in Washington, D.C., shows again how misdirected our priorities are because of this foreign policy that has been, in my mind, hijacked by the military-industrial complex, the people who are making a killing, often literally, off war, and a foreign policy elite that has taken us down precisely the wrong path. And could you could you talk as well about where are the areas of expansion of U.S. military bases? I'm thinking particularly, for instance, of the U.S. footprint in Africa, in uh, Eastern Europe, of course, and uh, as a as an as a contradiction, the lack of a U.S. military presence in Latin America because of the resistance of Latin American nations uh, to such bases. There has been pushback in virtually anywhere that you see U.S. military bases. Uh, people uh, face daily irritation. There are a range of views about U.S. military bases. In some places, they're absolutely uh, welcomed. But even in places where U.S. bases are welcomed, often there are um, accidents and crimes that lead to irritation and 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 I, I think the, the other thing that's really helpful with the the balloon incident, you saw again the kind of fear mongering, and and the understandable to some extent fear, even though of course the balloon posed no military threat to anyone in the United States. Uh, imagine if China were to announce that it was going to build a single base anywhere near the borders of the United States. 
We saw the reaction to uh, an unarmed balloon that posed no military threat. Imagine China was to announce that we were going to we was going to build a base, for example, in Mexico or Canada or the Caribbean. There would be calls for an immediate military reaction. And meanwhile, the United States is in the process of encircling China with more and more bases. And this has been a longstanding buildup over years dating to the Obama administration. The Trump administration continued it. And before it, the George W. Bush administration. There are, of course, also a buildup of, of bases in recent months in Eastern and Central Europe in reaction to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But the buildup in East Asia is one we should be deathly concerned about, I'm sorry to say. Uh, this, again, is escalating military tensions with the buildup of bases, not just in the Philippines, but an even larger buildup in Okinawa, in Australia, in Guam, at precisely a moment where we need to be moving in another direction. We need to be mo moving in a direction of building up embassies and diplomats, not bases and troops, to do everything we can to build a cooperative, again, if challenging, relationship of coexistence, peaceful coexistence, cooperation to address the threats that, that face everyone in the region and around the world, beginning with the kinds of territorial disputes one sees between China and the Philippines. These are territorial disputes that don't have to be intractable. We can, the U.S. government can play uh, an effective and constructive role in helping to resolve these sorts of territorial disputes as well as dealing with the tensions in the relationship with China, moving toward arms treaties, the kind of arms treaties we saw during the Cold War that helped tamp down military tensions between the Soviet Union and China. So one of the things I am calling for is the Biden administration, and hopefully they have done this already. The Biden administration should be rescheduling the visit of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to China and engaging in a process of a series of talks between leaders, senior leaders of the two governments, including Xi and Biden. Um, they can work together and we must push them to work together rather than moving in the direction of further military escalation. That again, I think we have to be very plain about this. The risk of a even accidental military clash between U.S. and Chinese forces grows by the day as long as we increase the kinds of military buildup that we have been pursuing for years that is only encouraging China to respond in kind, to build up its military forces, raising the risk of a military confrontation, which, again, could so easily spiral out of control into a nuclear war between the two most powerful nations on Earth that could literally end human existence on Earth. David so, Vine, I want to just ask, because we just have a minute to go, about something you tweeted yesterday, um, saying uh, that um, on Wednesday, tomorrow, Human Rights Watch will release an unprecedented report about crimes against humanity committed by the U.S. and U.K. against the Chagossians. That's the people of Chagos and Diego Garcia. Can you explain what this is about in just a minute? So the United States built a major military base on the island of Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean in the 1960s and 1970s. And in the process, with the help of the British government, forcibly removed the entire indigenous Chagossian people. They deported them 1,200 miles away, left them in impoverished exile. 
paid them no compensation, uh, gave them no choice about leaving their homes, and proceeded to build up a major military base that has played key roles in all the U.S. wars in the Middle East. Meanwhile, the Chagossians have been demanding the right to return home, have been demanding proper compensation, and have been ignored, almost completely, completely ignored by the United States, by successive administrations. And tomorrow, Human Rights Watch will be releasing a a major report announcing that they are charging both the United States and Britain with crimes against humanity for the forced deportation and the suffering that Chagossians have experienced in exile, as well as racial persecution. Uh, This is uh, clearly a a, a racist crime where U.S. administrations have avoided their responsibility for far too long. And in addition to moving in a a profoundly different direction uh, in terms of our overall foreign policy, a direction of of diplomacy and cooperation, the United States government should be finally acknowledging its responsibility for past crimes like that committed against the Chagossian people and allowing them to return home and providing proper compensation, as well as assisting in the resettlement of the Chagos Islands, including Diego Garcia. David Vine, I want to thank you so much for being with us, professor of anthropology at American University, co-founder of the Overseas Base Realignment and Closure Coalition, author of The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State, and Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. Next up. Bomb trains. You might have seen White Noise, the Oscar-nominated film. Well, sadly, this is the true story of a town in Ohio that has been engulfed by toxic fumes. Stay with us. Elizabeth Cotton. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we turn to Ohio, where residents of East Palestine are living the real-life version of the Oscar-nominated Netflix movie Some Help Make when they were extras in that film. This is part of the trailer for White Noise about a suburban community that faces a so-called airborne toxic event after a train wreck causes a chemical leak. Let's watch a sitcom or something. They're calling it the airborne toxic event. They won't come this way. Will we have to leave our home? Of course not. How do you know? I just know. Okay, what if it's dangerous? We have a situation. 
White Noise stars Greta Gerwig and Adam Driver. But in real-life Palestine, Ohio, fears of a wider health and environmental disaster are growing after a 150-car freight train operated by Norfolk Southern derailed and released toxic chemicals last week, yes, in the community of East Palestine near Ohio's border with Pennsylvania. Data released by the Environmental Protection Agency shows the train contained more toxic and carcinogenic chemicals than initially reported. The EPA also said, quote, materials released during the derailment were observed and detected in samples from Sulphur Run, Leslie Run, Bull Creek, North Fork, uh, Little Beaver Creek, and the Ohio River. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources estimates the spill killed more than 3,500 fish in surrounding waterways. Chickens have been found dead in their coops. Residents have reported sore throats, burning eyes, and respiratory problems. A controlled burn of the chemicals following the derailment sent a mushroom cloud of smoke and fire into the air that contained the toxic chemicals. Surveillance footage also shows the train on fire about 20 miles before it derailed with hazardous chemicals as it passed through Salem, Ohio. Officials lifted an evacuation order for residents Wednesday, saying the air and water are safe. For more, we're joined by three guests. Ross Gruders is with us, locomotive engineer, co-chair of Railroad Workers United. Julia Rock joins us, an investigative reporter with The Lever, who's been following the derailment in Ohio. Her piece is headlined, There Will Be More Derailments and Rail Companies Block Safety Rules Before Ohio Derailment. But we begin with Emily Wright, a resident of Columbiana County um, in Ohio, a few miles from the derailment and explosion site in East Palestine. She's also the development director for River Valley Organizing, which is working with residents to call for justice-centered healing. Julia, uh, Emily, can you describe the scene of what you're calling a chemically-driven environmental nightmare? What does it look like, (laughs) smell like? Describe what happened when the train derailed and how you learned about how you had to protect yourself. Um, Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, One of the the things that I really want people to know is that this event has kind of three parts. So Friday night, um, we had the derailment around 9 p.m. in between 9 and 10. And um, residents that were right at the site, you know, were evacuated. Then the next day, they evacuated more people on Saturday because it was still burning. And at this time, we didn't know what was on the cars. We heard maybe it was vinyl chloride, maybe um, it was 10 cars, maybe it was five. We really didn't have a great picture um, of what was you know, on the train. So we were told that if you were with outside of that mile zone, you're okay. I live a, a few short miles. Um, I think on the tracks, there's five miles in between where I'm at and where the derailment was. Um, and you know, you should be okay. And they kept saying the same thing over and over again on the media. And in the press conferences, there's no toxins in the air. There's no toxins. Don't, you know, don't worry. Um, Sunday night, we had heard, we got an alert on our phone that there had been an additional explosion and that the fire was out of control again, um, which it never really was in control. We have pictures and videos that timestamp clear through that show it it was burning. Um And to just be aware, like there was really no evacuation for us, just people 
that were a little bit further out from the radius. They were um, concerned on Monday morning that we were going to have an explosion. Um, I will give everybody, you know, this much that the explosion could have been much, much worse. So they announced to everybody that they were going to do a controlled release. And I am using air quotes um, when I say controlled. So they were supposed to do it at 3.30. My daughter was going to be on the bus route at that time. I already was experiencing symptoms of, I have asthma, so I was having shortness of breath already and was concerned, um, you know, from, from that burn, I already had irritation. But when they did the release, they were supposed to do it at 3.30 p.m. They announced on a huge, um, you know, press conference. Mike DeWine was there. All of a sudden, they stopped the press conference. They evacuated DeWine. I, I, um, we work with a lot of, um, you know, we're nonpartisan, nonprofit. So we work with a lot of, um, you know, both sides of the aisle, uh, politicians and had, you know, got confirmation that he had been rushed out of there. The media was given five minutes to get out that they were pretty sure an explosion was imminent. So they did not do the burn at 3.30. I can't tell you why. They did it two hours later. The problem is we had forecasted high wind gusts up to 45 miles an hour. We get a lot of wind in our area. The hills usually break it up, but it was announced that it was going to be very windy. So what they wanted to do was let it off earlier so the cloud would go. I'm sorry. One second, my voice. Um, So the cloud would go straight up. It It wouldn't span out. So they let it off late, and instead the winds caught it. It went over four counties, um, four to five counties in two states, actually three, because the panhandle of West Virginia was also affected. So we have Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, all affected by this huge mushroom cloud. You've all seen the pictures, I'm sure. Um, We started in my home, being just a few short miles away, experiencing nausea. Um, Sorry to be explicit, but diarrhea. Um, My father has bilateral asbestosis from working in the mill. So these industries are um, killing us in one more than one way. Um, And he could not breathe well. And, um, you know, I wanted to evacuate. We had family that was telling us to come, but then there was this massive shelter in place order put down. Do not be out if you don't have to shelter in place in the same breath. (laughs) I were hearing on a press conference and on the news. This is out of an extreme abundance of caution. There's no toxins. There's no toxins. There's no toxins. There's no toxins. That's all we kept hearing. Um, But the only thing I really want to highlight, and I'm sorry if I'm going on too much, is what we found out through the org. We've been on the ground talking with people. We're actually investing. Our offices are in East Liverpool, Ohio, um, which is just a little bit south of East Palestine, but we have a lot of members of our org that live like me in and around East Palestine. So we've invested in the community and are bringing on a couple organizers that are right outside the front door of the derailment, um, you know, to work with people. Because from day one, we've been fed what wasn't the truth. And now we find out what this EPA report that, what, over 10,000 gallons of oil went into the ground, that the vinyl chloride was like double what we thought. And there was dithylene glycol and there's other chemicals. Um, Norfolk Southern 
from what the EPA says, did not report this to the EPA in a timely manner. But, so we know this is. Well, Emily, I'd, li- I'd like to, uh, Emily, if I can, I'd like to bring in Ross Gruders as a locomotive engineer and co-chair of Railroad Workers United. Uh, Ross, uh, your reaction to this derailment and fire, uh, also this this report that the fire had actually started before the derailment. Uh, what is the normal procedure that is supposed to occur in situations like this? And and uh, what your assessment of this crisis is at, at this moment? Yeah, thank you, Juan. None of this really comes as, as a surprise. There's deep systemic issues Um, You talk about the normal response to an event like this. This isn't a normal event, and we really haven't seen anything like it in in the United States and probably not something like it since uh, 2013, uh, as you know, when uh, we had the Quebec uh, train derailment and explosion in Lac Megantique. There are deep systemic problems with the freight railroads right now, and those need to be addressed for us to have some sort of a normal response to events like this. And until we get at those those root causes of the safety issues in the freight rail system in this country, it's not a matter of if these events are going to uh, disrupt and, and, and really uh, – just what the people of East Palestine are going through is just, it's heart-wrenching. That's going to occur again. It's just a matter of, of when and where. And what are some of the things that need to be addressed? Well, at the root of it all is is really cutbacks to to staffing. You have companies that are, are making obscene amounts of money, and they're doing so by uh, adopting operating policies. Uh, there, there's a whole system for this called precision scheduled railroading that is just designed to maximize profits. And what that means is you're, you're cutting to the bone the amount of people doing the job. So you have fewer people doing a lot more work faster. Um, you have across the board cutbacks on, on the maintenance of cars on the maintenance of locomotives, on the maintenance of track. This is critical infrastructure. And those things are, are, are being done uh, in many cases by skeleton crews or, or outsourced to subcontractors. And then you have increasingly long and heavy trains like the one we saw here, where these trains have a greater propensity to derail. They're, they're going to derail more frequently because they are longer and heavier. Uh, and, and then lastly, you have the railroads themselves who are fighting any kind of regulation, uh, whether it, it be uh, train control systems that help uh, manage the signal system or, or the lobbying efforts that we saw to kill electronic braking, uh, which can make for, for safer operations and a, and a quicker stop should a derailment like this occur. You know, we're going to go to Julia Rock in a minute, the reporter who's covering this for The Lever. But I wanted to give um, Emily 30 seconds as you sit there, sometimes coughing, dealing with what you're dealing with. And by the way, I can only say I think about Juan, his reporting after 9-11. You're talking about the EPA at the time, Christine Todd Whitman, the former governor of New Jersey, um, saying that after 9-11 attacks, the air was fine. And Juan's reporting led, uh, exposing the lie of that, uh, to the Daily News winning a Pulitzer Prize. So, Emily, your last 30 seconds on Democracy Now! right now, what do you think is most important for people to understand? 
okay, the, the most important thing is that this is not a conspiracy theory. This is standard operating procedure for Norfolk Southern. They have 70 million in safety violations since 2000, and they have 21 million in environmental, just in environmental. Um, 25 million Americans live um, on an oil train blast zone, 25 million Americans. This is in the poorest parts of America, going from Conway, Illinois to Pennsylvania, cutting through Appalachia. You know, they continue to do, you know, safety issues, lower safety concerns, not worry about us because we are the people that historically cannot fight back. So what we're going to do with River Valley organizing is we're going to offer free soil and um, water testing to people so we can actually figure out what's going on. We have the University of Pittsburgh and the University of Kentucky on board to do long range studies because after the immediate aftermath, these people are are going to need um, people to advocate for them. And, um, you know, like Ten I said, I have, I have several family members that have cancer or asthma or COPD from these industries. And it's we really need them to stop killing us. And we told them 10 years ago, we told the EPA that bomb trains, this was going to happen. We had several collaborative organizations appeal to the EPA and it happened. Emily, we clearly are going to come back to you in these coming days because there's so much to talk about. Emily Wright with River Valley Organizing right next to East Palestine in Ohio. Ross, in 30 seconds, can you respond to uh, the the um, joint effort by the Republicans and the Democrats, the bill that was signed off on by Biden, the law prohibiting a rail strike and imposing a deal rejected by over half the unionized railroad workers? And then we're going to go to Julia Rock. Yeah, thank you, Amy. Uh, Railroad workers have been fighting uh, through the the contract negotiation process uh, for relief from the conditions, uh, which are are very stressful and and very demanding and have been exacerbated by precision scheduled railroading and the the corporate greed. Uh, We've been trying to get relief from that. That would certainly help us in in, uh, responding to and better managing uh, our jobs to ensure that this doesn't happen. But this isn't going to be solved by one labor contract. It is systemic and it it needs some regulation. It needs regulators to step in and correct this or or we're going to continue to see things like what happened in Ohio a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I'd like to bring in Julia Rock, the investigative reporter with The Lever, who's been following the derailment in Ohio. Um, Julia, talk about this issue of the of the railroad companies uh, convincing government officials to repeal break rules. Yeah, so this is uh, a story about the Obama administration attempting to require trains carrying hazardous materials as well as crude oil. Um, to install much better braking systems on the trains, electronically controlled brakes, rather than the air brake systems currently used on trains designed during the Civil War era, which stopped trains one car at a time. Um, And first, uh, the railroad industry fought the Obama rules. They lobbied really hard against them. Um, They argued it would be uh, terrible for business. It would would, uh, negatively impact the fluidity of the nation's rail system. And then um, when Trump uh, came into office, they turned around and pushed for Trump to repeal the break rules that the Obama administration had enacted, which he did. 
So we're talking about rules that went back to the Civil War. They haven't been updated. So the, the brakes currently on uh, America's freight trains uh, are air brakes, which uh, function by stopping train cars one at a time uh, using pressure that travels along a pipe along the train. Um, and, and that is a brake system that was designed in 1868. Astounding. You have 10 seconds for a final comment about what people should understand about East Palestine right now. So, yeah, this is the result of efforts by the railroad industry to ensure that they do not have to retrofit trains carrying hazardous materials and crude oil with safety features. Well, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Julia Rock of The Lever, Ross Gruders, locomotive engineer and co-chair of Railroad Workers United, and Emily Wright of River Valley Organizing. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena. Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamaria Studio, John Hamilton, Ravi Karen, Honey Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Happy birthday, Brendan Allen. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.